If you join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts and minds for the, uh, the sermon today, please. Gentle teacher, be patient with us as we turn again to your word. Give us clarity and peace of mind to hear, understand, and receive the following the leading this passage may impart. In words and in groanings, deeper and truer than what human language can convey. Amen. The sermon passage today is from Romans uh, chapter 12, verses 14 through 25. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Joe Gardner is a middle school band teacher who, his life just hasn't quite turned out the way that he had hoped. Uh, his passion is jazz, uh, but his, you know, life got in the way of, of chasing after his dream. He has, you know, meaning in his work. He, he loves it, but he longs for that sense of euphoria that fills his body when he is out there with other musicians, just losing himself in the rhythm and the melody. And then out of the blue, he's offered a fill-in gig with the legendary uh, jazz saxophone player Dorothea Williams. And as he's strolling through the crowded streets of Manhattan, talking excitedly on his way to the Greenwich Club on his phone, he walks into an open manhole. He finds himself. He wakens to have his body in a coma in a nearby hospital, while his disembodied soul is headed to an afterlife called the Great Beyond, where wispy, ethereal figures direct other recently dispatched souls toward their eternal home. So opens the 2020 Pixar film Soul. It's so good. The soundtrack is just amazing. And, and while the film's depiction of the afterlife maps with kind of a street-level spirituality with Joel's, uh, with Joe's immaterial soul kind of going up and ascending toward heaven after it leaves his body, it, its theology actually owes more to Plato than it does to St. Paul. 
Plato's legacy loomed very large in the world of the first century, and at the heart of his philosophy was this kind of dualism that separated the spiritual world of good and pure and eternal forms from the material world that was corrupt and evil and temporary. For him, the body was the prison house of the soul, and accordingly, to love the soul meant to despise the body. But Christian spirituality, on the other hand, has as it, at its center a God who is remarkably, decisively for the body. Think about our two biggest holidays. At Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation, the doctrine that in Jesus, God came into a body. Incarnation literally means to come into flesh. And then at Easter, we celebrate the resurrection, the reality that Jesus crucified, dead, and buried body rose from the dead to defeat the powers of sin and death so that one day at the renewal of all things, what happened to Jesus' body will happen to the bodies of all those who entrust themselves to him. So far from seeing the body as something to be discarded, thrown away, looked down upon, Christian spirituality awaits the renewal of the body. Adam's body was part of the, the good creation. When God saw it, he said, and it was very good. And this is the struggle that's at the, the heart of Paul's letter to the Romans. The body that has been created good is also a body infected by sin. And not just the body, but all of creation eagerly awaits redemption. And yet for all that, the church has always had this temptation to split the soul from the body and say that it is the former, the soul, that God really cares about. One of the very first heresies to break out in the church was docetism. And docetists had no problem with the claim that, you know, Jesus was fully divine, but they could not believe that God would ever stoop so low as to inhabit a body, to become fully human. To say that God is fully human is to say that God took on flesh, this very thing in which all of the problems of our, lo our, our life are located, and, and, and to say that somehow our hope is tied up in the body. And the Gnostics then came along and claimed that Jesus only appeared to take on a body. He was pure spirit, just as we are. And, and, and learning that truth about ourselves that is what salvation looks like to the Gnostic. This seemed kind of mutated and, and went on during the Enlightenment where theology in Europe took a sharp turn toward the philosophical and the church responded by emphasizing pure doctrine as the key to salvation and away from the body as the place where faith is actually lived out. The body has always been the most contested place in Christian spirituality. And yet for all that, the Bible's vision of the human person is that you are not a Russian doll. You can't be broken apart, segmented, you know, to smaller pieces. You are a whole person. When God breathes into Adam's body, that body becomes a soul. Your soul is all of you, including your body. The word for soul, both 
nefesh in Hebrew and psyche in Greek, conveys this idea that to be a whole self before God takes into account all of who you are. So that means your social context, things like your relationships, your, your nationality, your ethnicity, your, your family of origin. As Pete Scazzaro likes to say, Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. You navigate the world as a body. You have a mind that contains your thoughts, your feelings, and a heart that, at least in the biblical sense, isn't the thing that pumps blood throughout your body. It's the, it's the executive center of your will. Uh, another way to think of it is like this. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. The Navy gets it right when they say there are 87 souls aboard this ship. They're talking about persons. You cannot divide the body from the soul. And spiritual formation is the process of the Spirit of God interacting with your spirit and transforming you from the inside out across all these layers of yourself, bringing all aspects of yourself into order so that your whole person, your soul, is increasingly marked by the love, the joy, the peace of Jesus himself. Spiritual formation is about all of you which means it's about your body. Discipleship to Jesus has to take the body seriously. But there are a lot of things that get in the way of that, desires that break into all of these different layers of the self that try to work their way toward the center, try to orient yourself around those things. And all sorts of ways then that we become disordered. Our, our will, for instance, gets locked in a struggle sometimes against our, our mind, against our, our body, against our social settings. We feel torn and confused and like we're coming undone, tense and tired all the time. How do we make sense of all the parts of me that feel like they're divided? How do I partner with God to integrate these scattered pieces of my soul into life with God? And how can I see the body with all of its competing desires and functions not as an enemy of the soul but as an ally? Well, we're in a series on fasting and fasting is one of the most powerful practices of Jesus because it is a way of taking discipleship with your body seriously. But before I go any further and dive into the scripture, I, I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about what goes on in the body when we fast. And a little while ago, I was having conversation with uh, a friend, a member here of All Souls, who is way more knowledgeable about this than I am. And so I thought I'd invite her to join me. I phoned a friend, if you will. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Larimore is the chair of neuroscience and philosophy department at Agnes Scott College just down the road. She has authored numerous articles and a book called Neuroscience Basics. She is passionate about her work with students. She's married to Scott, mom to Catherine and Sarah. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Jennifer Larimore. So for those of us who are uninitiated and hear a word like uh, neurobiology, uh, what is it that you study? So, um, oh gosh, I started graduate school in 2003, a long time ago, um, and I started... Some people in the room were not born then. I know. Some of my students don't remember 
the late 1900s. That thing called boredom? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's fun. Uh, so in, uh, when I started graduate school, I thought I was going to go into cancer biology. I really thought cells were amazing and fun. Um, but I got hooked on neuroscience um, in that first year of graduate school, um, and I haven't looked back. Um, neuroscience is fascinating, um, and I study how the cells communicate during development. So I've looked at different neurodevelopmental disorders um, and figured out what's going on with the cells during that. I heard someone say in the realm of astrophysics that we know about as much about the universe as we do about the brain. Or maybe less. Um, there's a lot we don't know. It's a great unknown, um, as far as I'm concerned in science. Uh, and so it's the coolest place to be. Yeah. Uh, well, we met, when we met at Kavarna a while back, this was like a couple years ago. It was, I think, within my, f maybe just after like, things started opening up yeah. after the pandemic, uh, we were talking about uh, an interesting intersection that came into your life when you were reading Jonathan Edwards and studying the brain. Tell us a little bit about what happened there. I really sound like a fun person. <laughs> she also swims and runs and was sorted into the Gryffindor house yeah. in Harry Potter. Yeah, I read that on your website. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Uh, so uh, I was reading Jonathan Edwards as was assigned to me in my liberal arts education. It was not my fun light reading for the weekend. Sinners um, in the hands of an angry God, not it's, fun? I know. Okay. It's so light. Um, but I, I was taking the American Lit class the semester after I'd taken another fun in light class, organic chemistry. Um, that one was a little more tearful. Um, but in organic chemistry, I had an amazing professor, Dr. Binky, um, and he taught us uh, glycolysis and ketosis and fermentation. And somewhere in our balancing of equations, Dr. Binky just looked out and said, by the way, um, in the spiritual realm, if any of you participate in fasting, it takes about three days uh, for the human body to switch from running on glucose to running on fat or ketone bodies um, and to switch into ketosis. And then we had to balance those equations. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that Dr. Brinke gave us this piece of random information in organic chemistry. Uh, and then uh, I took that into American Lit when we were reading Jonathan Edwards again as an assignment. Um, and the professor mentioned some history behind Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, said that Jonathan Edwards had indeed written this three or four days into a fast. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what his brain chemistry was. Um, I think I was the only student asking that question in American Lit, um, but it was, it was a really fascinating class, and I was at a college where they let me explore um, what was going on and helped me find answers. Yeah. Asbury uh, College made the news this last year uh, with the revival that broke out there. Um, yeah. Actually, I, fasting and prayer played a big part in that pro uh, prolonged uh, kind of period. Well, what, so what happens in the brain, in the body specifically, when you fast? A lot. Um, so there's a lot that goes on in the brain. There are a few things. Um, a few things that we know of, and I can say it that way. Um, in a neurotypical individual, um, we know some of what switches. So usually, um, you could think of the brain kind of like a hybrid car. 
Uh, usually you're running on gasoline, but you might switch to electricity at the stoplight. Um, the brain will do something similar in a fast, so it'll switch from running on sugar um, to running on ketone bodies produced from breaking down fat. Um, that switch is really interesting. We don't know everything about what happens with that switch, um, but we do know that switching to that will enhance how your brain communicates with its neighbor's cells. So that communication is changed and um, it's enhanced in a positive way. So the change is good. So what are some of the, the benefits that happen that come along with that? You've done some research and some reading on kind of some of the things that, that science has, has found. So science is looking into both um, the health benefits and the neurological benefits for fasting, um, as well as looking at the ketogenic diet. So there's a lot of information out there from those two um, studies, and then also studies that look at um, Muslims that fast during Ramadan. And so a lot of the information that's out there is indicating increased learning and memory, increased overall cognition, um, and then an overall uh, increase in mood stability and stress resilience. So good things. All good things. Yeah. Uh, you, you said there's also been uh, some research with Alzheimer's uh, patients and uh, people who are struggling with uh, cognitive decline that yeah. fasting has somehow, in, in some cases, slowed the, the process yes. of the, the progression of the disease. Yeah. And in some ways they've gone better. Gotten better. Yeah. Gotten, come back some of the... Some of the A lot of the studies um, are looking for the uh, neurodiverse population. They're looking at Alzheimer's, epilepsy, multiple sclerosis. Um, in the mouse models, they're looking at ADHD, at neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, and everything shows an increase in learning and memory, an increase in stress resilience. So it's like God knew something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Jennifer also has a spiritual practice that we benefit from every week. How did that come about? I started making sourdough bread. Um, <laughs> not during the pandemic, which is everybody else's story. Um, it took me a while, but Basically, I still love chemistry and science, and this is a tasty way to do it at home. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jennifer, Thank for you. giving us a glimpse of, uh, of your, your knowledge. And I saw Dr. Kraft taking notes on that section over there as well. She's in my line of sight here. <laughs> well, I wanted to have Jen join me just to kind of underscore that reality that the, the mind and the body often, they work together. We are whole beings. Spiritual practices are holistic. They deal with the whole person. It's never an either or. It is always a both and. So while there is something that goes on in the body, and that is good, I also want to remind that the goal behind the spiritual practice isn't therapeutic in the sense of losing weight, saving off disease, or cleaning out your gut microbiome. For followers of Jesus, uh, one theologian described it first and foremost as a therapy to heal all that prevents us from conforming to the will of God. 
Put another way, it's a means of growing in grace, of being transformed into the image of Jesus. And so much of the temptation that we deal with is located in the body. And so fasting is a way of enlisting the body in that fight against these self-defeating cycles of sin and shame. The theological category for that is sanctification. To sanctify something is to set it aside, to make it holy, to dedicate it to God for God's purposes. To fast is a way of setting the body apart and dedicating it for God. St. Augustine describes it like this, fasting cleanses the soul, raises the mind, subjects one's flesh to the spirit, renders the heart contrite and humble, scatters the clouds of concupiscence, sexual desire, it's a $10 word there, quenches the fire of lust, and kindles the true light of chastity. And throughout history, disciples of Jesus like him have found fasting as a key practice of the spiritual life to enlist the body to aid the soul. They saw the body as both an obstacle and as an aid in this fight against sin. Uh, One of those was the third century theologian Evagrius who described eight deadly thoughts that sabotage the soul. Those were later developed uh, subsequently into seven deadly sins made famous by Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt in the 90s. Uh, You know what they are, gluttony. Greed, sloth, rast, envy, pride, lust. And in his thought, gluttony was the very first of those deadly thoughts because he saw the, in the human body the way that an unchecked appetite has this cascading effect across all of the others. It leads to the soul's ruin. This is a little bit about what St. Paul is getting at when he describes the enemies of the cross to the Philippians as their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. And particularly, Evagrius saw the link between gluttony and lust as these strong bodily impulses and that the capacity to steward the body's natural desires uh, for, in a healthy way for you know, food and sleep and sex, they're all connected. They, they rise and they fall together. This is the tension that Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 7. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, that is exactly what I keep on doing. There are parts of the Bible that you read and you have to kind of dig into the history, the context, and, and let them work on you. But then there are other parts that you read And they just cut to the heart of what it means to be human. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that is what I do. Anyone ever feel that way? Just a couple of you. Cool. (laughs) That that feeling that your, your deepest desires to love God, to to pursue him, to love the good, to be a person whose thoughts, whose actions are marked by love. Those are your deepest desires, but at any given moment, they are overridden by your stronger desires. To breathe out that biting comment at the end of the day. The inability to rejoice at a friend's good news because of some deep-seated envy. That, That little white lie that you told just to save face. The gaze that looks at a body as flesh to exploit 
rather than as a soul who bears God's image. And Paul is just naming that existential angst of sin, that self-defeating cycle. Well, that's what Paul and Jesus throughout the New Testament call the flesh. The word in Greek is sarx, and it has this wide semantic range, but chances are if ever you read the flesh in the New Testament, more often than not, it is describing the, that, that part of human nature that is inside all of us that does not see life as a gift of the creator, but as something to be controlled and exploited under one's own power for one's own desire. Said another way, it is that part of your soul that is bent away from the kingdom of God and God's vision of flourishing of what is good and what is beautiful and what is true and is bent toward that basic primal drive for self-gratification. It's what Augustine called disordered desire. And flesh does not mean matter as in the phrase flesh and blood it, it is getting at this, this idea, again, you're this whole person. You can't separate your, yourself out. Your flesh has to do with your whole person. It's those instinctual drives in your body for things like food and sleep and sex and power and dominance. But it's also these kind of ethereal things like security and safety and affection and esteem and agency. And so it's not to say that desires are naturally bad. Without desire, you would not get up in the morning. But desire has a way of curving inward, of being disordered. And life under the flesh does not lead to life, but to all manner of death and pain. The flesh curves love that was meant to be directed outward back inside itself. It causes us to redefine good, not in relation to God or others flourishing, but in relation to the voice of our own head, whatever our culture may be saying, whatever the desires of our own body, to get what it wants, when it wants it, do not get in my way. It leads to a life of maximal self-indulgence instead of an other-centered life of self-denial. Hence, Paul writes, now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. It is this thing that we cannot control within ourselves. We do not have the resources within ourselves to restrain these desires in our own power. He goes on, so I find this law at work. Although I, I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. It's the flesh that whispers these seductive lies. Like the one that to discover your most authentic self is to chase every desire that you have, to give into it. And the point is the fight is not against the body the fight is actually for the body, it is against the flesh. And in contrast to this, Jesus and those who follow after him have viewed desire not as an open road that you travel it down to discover the real you, but as a mixed bag, one that in partnership with the Spirit can be turned inward and can be turned outward, can be reordered and directed our hearts toward God, toward his kingdom. So this is the flesh, not the body that we find in contrast to and in opposition to what Paul calls the spirit, that deeper part of you. 
That part of you that was made to be at home with God, that, that calls after God, that longs to be with God, that part of you that is being reshaped by the Spirit of God through the saving work of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the good news is that the flesh's days are numbered. It's dying. Paul asked the rhetorical question, who will save me from this body of death? What's the answer? It's church, people. The answer is Jesus. <laughs> his faithfulness has broken the stranglehold. His sacrifice, his faithfulness makes it possible for you to answer his call to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. But the problem is, on this side of the resurrection, we are still this mixed bag of flesh with its desires, the spirit with its desires. So when contrasting the spirit and the flesh in Galatians, Paul says, those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh. He tells the Colossians, put to death the desires of the flesh. Calvin called this the mortification of the flesh, which sounds like something out of a zombie movie. But it simply means take active steps to partner with the Spirit, to walk with the Spirit in this battle against the flesh. Not to shrug it off, not to justify it, not to turn a blind eye to it, but to actively surrender it to God where it has been crucified on the cross. The New Testament does not shy away from battle imagery, but it does not direct it toward the body, toward the flesh. And the question is, how do we take up this battle? You ever decide you're just going to stop sinning? Like, has anybody had a New Year's resolution? Like, I'm not going to say any harsh words about any, I'm only going to be positive. I'm, I'm not going to lust this year. Like, how's that going for you? Paul goes on to write, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But by the Spirit, if you put to, deeds the death, uh, the, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Translation, you cannot just white-knuckle it through. You need the Spirit of God to defeat the flesh. It's not about your willpower. Willpower's fine. Willpower against an extra slice of pizza will work. Sometimes. Willpower against that inner forest fire of anger stemming from a childhood wound. Or against an addiction. Not a chance. As apprentices of Jesus, we need the Spirit. The same power of the Spirit that Jesus had available to him that he promises is available to us. If we want to experience the renewal of all things, including this flesh, we need to practice the way of Jesus. And one way that we grow in this ability to draw on the power of the Spirit is to do the same things that Jesus did, to take on his overall manner of life. These are called the practices. And fasting is one of the best practices to strengthen the Spirit, to weaken the hold of the flesh. To close, I just want to go real quickly about how does it do that. Well, there are three main ways. And the first one is this. The first thing that fasting does is it reveals our desires. It's this way of kind of stripping away all of the, the layers of the false self, all of our emotions, all of our longings, all of those stronger desires that in the moment overpower us to reveal those deeper desires of our hearts. In his book, The Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster writes, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. 
And it's not always pretty. We learn a lot about ourselves. For me, it's usually around two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> like how fragile we are. How much we need external things to be happy. How far our hearts are away from God. And then once all those desires come up, we get to question those desires. The spiritual writer Ronald Rollheiser says that spirituality is what you do with your desire. To get back to that integrated center, the answer is not in repressing down desire or indulging it or judging it, but in chasing it to its source. And to find as those things shift and they settle that we have the opportunity to give them then back to God. Secondly, fasting reorders our desires. Now, I'm not like a sage Jedi knight level master of this or anything, but it has been part of my, my, my rule of life for a while. And one of the things that I notice when I am fasting is that in that sifting process, my desires begin to shift. They begin to move around. Those deeper desires, the things that I want to, to reflect in my life, uh, a life that naturally produces the, life, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, they, those things come to the surface. I want them more. I find myself drawn to a God who is bigger than my desires can handle. And I start to see others as something other than an obstacle or as a means of fulfilling my desires. As those desires begin to go down, other desires begin to go up. The mid-century writer, uh, pastor, Arthur Wallace, described fasting as a discipline of the body that has a tendency to humble the soul. And that's what I find, these, these disordered desires that I am prone to, ego, lust, pride, they begin to go down, the healthy desires, patience, kindness, friendship, compassion, those begin to go up. And in that process, God is doing in his power what I cannot do by my power. And that's the third thing. In fasting, we receive. We draw on the spirit of God to overcome the flesh. John Calvin spoke of fasting as a way to chasten the body. And that's kind of old language, but basically his point is to think of it as kind of like a, a form of resistance training, to, to wean the body away from the need to gratify every desire. We know this, our culture is kind of maximalist when it comes to pleasure. The idea of delayed gratification as part of the journey toward maturation seems to be like a really out-of-step idea. It's been replaced by this notion that what you've got to do is like fulfill every desire. Denying, denying your pleasure is a form of self-hate. But we all know this, that pleasure does not always lead to joy. There's not a straight line to those things. Some of the things that we do, we do them not because they are pleasurable, but because they yield results down the road. I think of anyone who runs. I mean, some of you find it pleasurable in the moment. I pray for you, but... Like we do it, to, you know, not because we love like our legs burning and our lungs burning, but because we enjoy the health and the freedom on the other side of it. And fasting is a practice like that. It is a practice, and, and the point of the practice is, is not the practice in itself. It is the God behind it. Thomas Kempis described the spiritual disciplines as kind of this process of Removing obstacles in our, in our spiritual journey and, and finding the aids to help us grow in that journey. And the two main things that he, he writes, which assist in the amendment of life, 
are a forcible withdrawal from the vices to which we naturally incline and a determined pursuit of any grace that we especially need. Withdrawal from vice, that's that saying no to the harmful things. That's the part that's self-control. The determined pursuit of grace, that's saying yes to things that may be challenging and not easy in the moment, but that are good. That's self-discipline. Together, they work to, to, to effectively align our will with God's will. And I've come to believe that particularly in desires of the body, whether it's greed or gluttony or, or lust or whatever, that fasting is one of the most powerful tools at our disposal. Akepis went on to write, Restrain from gluttony, and thou shalt all the more easily restrain all the other inclinations of the flesh. And his thought was not like it's one-stop shopping, you do this and you're done. It does not replace therapy, it does not replace community, it does not replace getting a dumb phone if that's what you need or whatever. But it's a way to open the body to the power of the spirit, to train the body to move beyond pleasure, beyond instant gratification, to help us learn that we can be happy and content when we don't immediately get what we want. To help train us for those times in life when that is all that we have on offer, whether by circumstance or by others' control or by the sovereignty of God. There are times in life when what we want, we cannot have. Fasting is a way ultimately to embrace those hard seasons and to find God in the midst of us, to train ourselves. Ultimately to offer ourselves to God in relationship and to draw on the power of the Spirit because it is the Spirit that produces transformation. It is the Spirit that does all the heavy lifting. The only thing we have to give God is our weakness. The thing that God promises to give is his strength. To end, John Mark Comer has this great line in his work on fasting. He says, fasting is a way to turn your body from an enemy to an ally in your fight against the flesh. And that is why it is so hard, particularly at first. You are essentially picking a fight with your flesh. And especially if there's like some emotional weight attached to this, it's, it's tough. The thing is, though, you do not fight alone. The Spirit fights on your behalf. And like any practice, the more you do it, the easier it, it becomes. At first, like I said, I was angry. I was irritable. I got hangry. It was not, a, not, not pretty. But that was 11 years ago. And now I actually kind of look forward to those days. And again, if you're not in the place where you can engage right now, but please, this, this is a place of grace. This is not law. This falls into kind of the category of, of wisdom. But if, it, if because of like some past experiences or, your, or life circumstances, again, please hear me. There's no pressure. This is all invitation. It is a practice. The power is not in the practice. It is in the God behind it the God who has already gone before you. It's a way of, in our power, offering ourselves to God, opening our lives to the Holy Spirit so that God can do the things that we cannot do in his power, which is break every chain of oppression that the flesh has on our lives. That is what it's about. It is about freedom. And the really great news is the best part of it is you get Jesus himself. 
You're invited to him, soul, body, all of you.